Welcome to Southeastern Economic Perspectives, an occasional podcast from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. We're talking today about water with Atlanta Fed research economist Chris Cunningham and Mark Reese, professor of agricultural engineering at the University of Georgia. Dr. Cunningham specializes in political economy and urban economics, and Dr. Reese studies water quality and supply issues in Georgia and around the Southeast. We're talking first with Chris Cunningham. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Thanks for having me, Charles. Chris, first off, what are some of the potential long-term economic implications of water scarcity? Well, the obvious conclusion is that it's a check on future growth. Uh, water permits will be harder to obtain for new construction, and, and that could potentially limit the Atlanta metro area's long-term growth. What about manufacturers, other types of companies, when they're evaluating places to locate new facilities? Would, would the water supply be a factor there? Uh, almost assuredly, but it's hard to believe that firms that are going to be that sensitive to the price of water uh, are going to have a long-term future in a, a metropolitan area of 5 million people. Uh, the firms that are, are here, that are going to stay here, and that will be attracted here are, are firms that need to be here, that need access to the upstream and downstream suppliers, um, the services of professionals and distribution networks. That's the real engine. That's the agglomerative force. Um, and assuming that we can continue to house those new workers and support those industries, uh, I think that's probably more of a concern. Well, you mentioned Atlanta, and it, obviously it does seem to have the most serious problems in the southeast right now. What are some of the things that can be done in the reasonably near term? Uh, I'm actually somewhat optimistic about Atlanta's ability to respond to the scarcity uh, in fact, Georgia, overall Georgia uses more water on average than the average American. Uh, so there, there is tremendous room to uh, conserve, to use water more efficiently uh, with both in agriculture and at the household level. Um, the first step in doing that, of course, is, is creating the right incentives for people to conserve. Typically, w- the way we price water now is one based on a sort of falling long-run marginal cost. This is standard undergrad economics. This makes the water supplier a natural monopolist, and you tend to want to charge high prices to those who have very inelastic demand, such as households, and charge very low prices to those who are very sensitive to it, such as manufacturers and agriculture. Now, all of a sudden, we're in a period of water scarcity, and the situation is reversed. We're actually trying to modify behavior. Uh, And in that situation, it, it actually might be very prudent to increase prices on those who are in some ways the marginal consumers of water agriculture that is growing crops that we're, in other words, already subsidizing, we would ideally be able to bid the water away from them. So are higher prices really the most effective incentive to conserving water? Well, you know, a standard textbook answer would be yes, Uh, although I have to say I'm quite amazed by uh, the power of social coercion. Uh, It seems that neighbors who wouldn't say a word about you cheating on your wife are happy to rat you out for uh, watering your lawn in the middle of this crisis. Whether that is a a sufficient check on on water use is is to be determined. Uh, But as an economist, I have to to come out and say that, uh, yeah, the the price of the commodity should reflect its its cost of procuring it, and raising the price should be the most efficient way to do it. Uh, There are uh, certain challenges. Consumers with some of the most inelastic demand are probably pretty wealthy people and may not be that responsive to the price. 
And, and of course, we certainly have equity considerations. Um, most likely, the way to do this is either with a graduated tariff structure, which has already been implemented in many local water authorities, or setting a high rate, but then um, refunding a certain allocation, uh, such that the you know the median water user is left unharmed, and the heavy consumers are you know paying a, a substantial premium for that extra water. What are what are some innovative ideas that we might see governments try to to help people conserve or to incent people to conserve water or, on the other hand, also to expand the water supplies? I think we need to think about how we treat water as a as a commodity or don't. Um, you know, a common expression is that in the Western states is that water flows towards money. Uh, now, that I think ha- has some populist uh, undertone to it, but it's actually you know a case for efficiency there. Uh, cities that need the water are able to bid it away from the agriculture users who can, for the right price, be persuaded to grow something else, a drought-resistant crop. And that is efficient in an economic sense, in a cozy sense. Um, we do not have the same legal structure here, and it makes it much more difficult for the, the needy municipalities who have a very high demand and a, place a high price on that water to exchange that their need for those of agricultural users or manufacturers. The infrastructure is just not there in a legal sense to do that. I, I think there's talk of reforming that, and that is probably a, a useful direction to go in. I think the future probably lies in, again, trying to, to bid away water from, from some of the marginal users in our existing drainage basin or um, going to other nearby drainage basins that could be persuaded to share it. Um, Tennessee, I think, has a lot of water, and it's not that far away. In 1901, L.A. built an aqueduct 300 miles to get its initial water. Uh, And if they could do it then and continue to grow to a city that's 10 million now, uh, I think um, there are much more practical solutions at hand. Well, what what are some of the other things we can learn from the Western states, Chris? Because they obviously have a long history of dealing with water scarcity. One possibility is consider changing the permitting process or adding additional impact fees that consider the harm done to the overall watershed of new construction. Um, that's an externality that you know an economist would want to place a Pigouvian tax on. Would want to try to align their the incentives of developers with that of um, the community as a whole. But all of this is, is, is somewhat problematic um, given the downstream claimants on, on the water. Uh, so as much as we conserve, you know, we don't – but for the water that goes into our landscaping, uh, all of the water that we, we use comes back out through the treatment process. And so one, one could be forgiven for saying, well, you know, if I don't – if I don't – you know, the more I conserve, the more they're just going to have to – more water they'll have to release from Lake Lanier in order to um, satisfy the downstream claimants on that water. And and that is a problem that, that's uh, uh, even somewhat more thorny. How do we incentivize um, all parties that have claims on this water to work together to conserve it? And it's it's not so clear that, that right now that those rights are well allocated. For another perspective, we turn now to Mark Reese of the University of Georgia. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Reese. No problem. Happy to do it. All right. Well, Mark, first off, are we likely to see actual water rationing in metro Atlanta to have times during the day when water service might actually be turned off? Is that what this could come to? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened uh, next year. Every indication 
that I get from our state climatologist is that we're going to probably have a uh, a, a dry winter, which I mean we we will get some rainfall, and it'll seem like we're getting enough water, uh, but we're probably not going to get sufficient rain to refill our reservoirs, and I'm expecting that next summer it's going to get uh, worse than it did this summer, uh, and that local governments, you know, some of them will be more prepared than others, and I wouldn't be surprised if we saw uh, rationing uh, or some sort of uh, more severe conservation plan uh, in the next year. Well, how long, longer term, Mark, how much of the answer to these this water scarcity problem is about expanding the supply, and how much of it is about reducing use? First off, we've got to, got to look at conservation and conserve as much water as we can, and, and there's lots of ways uh, we can do that. Then that that's not going to be enough. We're not going to be able to, to continue to grow with just conservation, and we're going to need to look at... Uh, other methods such as building building reservoirs, storing some of the the water we do get in the winter uh, for times when we we don't get as much as we need, and uh, even interbasin transfers, moving water from areas where we have it to where we don't have it. And then the fourth one that that I don't think many people talk about that that I think is important is looking at changing the areas where we're growing and uh you know rather than growing all in metro Atlanta where we don't have enough water uh, there's plenty of other areas of the state where we don't have as uh, as many water problems and and they may be more suitable for future growth Mark are there business opportunities in this you think or in other words are there are there ways uh folks out there who are going to see their business expand who are helping companies and, and maybe even individuals figure out how to better conserve water? Oh, oh yeah. And I, I get calls from those those every day, everything from the people that manufacture uh, you know, condensate systems that will recycle the, the condensed water out of your air conditioner back into uh, your toilets for flushing to people that uh, are, are looking at gray water reuse where, you know, the water from your sinks or, or bathtubs might be able to be stored and used for irrigation. We've got a whole industry around the development of cisterns that might take the water that's coming off your roof and store it in a gigantic tank uh, under underground and allow that to be uh, reused. Uh, and then you've got the whole consulting industry associated with with business and industries. Uh, we're actually seeing water conservation uh, positions being created within the industry where they hire a, a person that has no, you know, their primary job is to look at how can we conserve water, and oftentimes the industry can save enough Water that they can pay this person's salary with a savings. So, uh, city and county governments are the same way. I don't know how many uh, how many governments around Georgia now have water conservation coordinators, but I know uh, the city of Athens and I, I believe uh, Savannah both have you know a, a paid position called the water conservation coordinator for those communities and. 
and I imagine we're going to see more of those popping up. So, you know, there, there's businesses, there's there's private sector consulting, there there's government uh, positions that are all going to be created, and uh, I think they're all needed as well. Is, is this as bad as this drought is and the water shortage, Mark? Is it a in some ways an opportunity for hydrologists, people in your field, to to use as a as a as a very useful kind of laboratory to try some things or to to advance the science? Um, I would say if, for people in my field that, uh, you know, the drought's causing attention, ca- causing a lot of attention to be placed on the issue. And, uh, you know, a lot of what what we do in, in academia or, or in research uh, and policy development, it's going to take so long that we're not really going to affect this drought. But it's it it is building an understanding in the general public and in the with the policymakers that you know maybe some of the stuff we do is really important and and needs to be uh, taken a bit more seriously so that future future drought impacts are are minimized. Uh, I don't know you know some of the I was in in a meeting yesterday with with some folks in in industry. And they were trying to figure out how to respond to the drought from a, a totally different perspective, because because the water they're getting to their plants now is of a lower quality. They are beginning to have to figure out, you know, what how do I need to ch- change my my treatment system? Uh, these were specifically poultry plants, and because the reservoirs that their water is coming from have been pulled down, they've got higher levels of mang- manganese and higher levels of iron in the water that's coming into the plant. And so they have to change their processing methods based on the water they're getting to the plant. Now, if you would have asked me uh, before this drought occurred whether you know a poultry processing plant's going to have to change their processes uh, because of this drought, I-, I would have never guessed that impact. And, and so we, we, we're learning a lot through the drought of what these impacts could be. Well, Mark, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. It was interesting. Okay. Well, thank you. This concludes our Southeastern Economic Perspectives podcast. Again, we've been talking with Mark Reese of the University of Georgia and Atlanta Fed research economist Chris Cunningham. Thanks for listening, and please return for more podcasts. If you have comments, email us at podcast at frbatlanta.org.